1: You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans plan features and taxes and fees may vary this is the Ion Travel podcast with CBS News travel editor Peter Greenberg
0: hi everybody Peter Greenberg here with another edition of the Ion Travel podcast coming this week from New York and the Gansevoort Hotel right in the middle of the Meatpacking District And if New York City is all about neighborhoods, then this one is one of the hottest. It's now an art center, a fashion center, a design center, and a food center. And the history here is nothing short of rich and deep. Joining me, Kim Conagy, one of the curators at the Whitney Museum of American Art, which never ceases to enlighten and amaze. Their permanent collection alone is 26,000 pieces. Then I'll chat with Noreen Doyle the President and Chief Operating Officer of the Hudson River Park Trust, an amazing four-mile-long park just a few blocks from the hotel, with surprising green space and learn what she's doing to rebuild once-abandoned piers, not to mention what they're doing with oysters. And then a shift to the latest travel trends with John Gieselman, the President of Expedia Brands, with his take on surging travel demand rising ticket prices, and the interesting and perhaps surprising trends in Americans' travel behaviors. Not to mention his tips for how and when to book to actually save some money. First up, from the legendary Whitney Museum, curator Kim Conity. Ah.
2: The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes.
0: There really is no place like home.
2: And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. At Amica
1: Insurance, we know it's more than just a house, it's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out, to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica empathy is our best policy.
3: Kim Connedy, how are you? Hi, fine, thanks.
0: Now you had to come down here too.
3: <laughs> <laughs> that's right, right. That's right. Now, were you at the Whitney when it was uptown? I was, but in a previous role. So yeah. I had worked at the Whitney in 2007 and 2008 on the 2008 biennial, which was, of course, uptown. And actually, my very first museum internship was at the Whitney, also uptown in 1998.
0: So, so you got your visa stamped and you got to come right. downtown.
1: <laughs>
3: that's but right. the Whitney here, it's got a lot more space. It does. It does, especially for our permanent collection, which is really exciting. And that was a major reason for the move downtown, was to be able to really... Show all of these works from our collection. We have you know twice as much space to do that now. And when you say the permanent collection, give me a number. I mean, how big is it? The permanent collection includes a little over twenty-six thousand objects.
0: They're not on display at the same time. They are not. They can't no, be. they
3: cannot be. I, there's barely a museum in the world that could have all of the works on display at one time. But at least our percentages are better now in this larger building. And you have enough time and space to organize it better. That's right. Right? You're not racing. Mm -hmm. Exactly.
0: How has the museum defined the neighborhood or how has the neighborhood defined the museum?
3: Um, I think that's a great question and it absolutely goes both ways. Um, When the museum first moved down to Gansevoort Street in 2015, um, this neighborhood was already growing. It was already, you know, a cultural hub. The High Line was there, Um, but it it was up and coming still. And now that the Whitney is here, I think we've, you know, we really have embraced this idea of the Whitney now as part of this cultural village and the histories also of this neighborhood as a real artist community. You know, so many artists live here now, have lived here, um, and we sort of see ourselves as part of that. And you're the largest repository of
0: Edward Hopper's work. That's right. Mm-hmm. Wow. Plus mm-hmm. your exhibit now is Edward Hopper's
3: New York. Yes, exactly. That's the coolest. <laughs> it's been a very... Um, It's been a wonderfully illuminating lens through which to see Hopper's work, because I think many people, when you call up a work by Hopper, it might be one of his um, seascapes, like a landscape from Cape Cod. See, the one I think about all the time Mm -hmm. is the the diner. Right, right. The (laughs) luncheonette. Right, exactly. That wasn't New York, or was it? That was actually based on New York. It was. It was. Yes, yes. I mean, what Hopper does, which is what makes the work kind of endlessly fascinating and also very universal, is that he takes from a specific place, from his specific experience here in New York, but then he really opens it up so that he's not giving us a specific street, he's not giving us the name of the diner, um, he's giving us a place that could be anywhere. Could be in Cleveland. Could be in Cleveland. Mm -hmm. And... He, as an artist, he drew across all mediums, didn't he? Yes, yes. He really, um, you know, he got his start. Well, I should say he he earned his first renown um, as a young artist in uh, through making etchings, in fact, through his print work. Um, and that's where he really first made a name for himself. And it was after that that he gained notoriety for his watercolors in the 1920s. And only after that, in the late 1920s, when he was in his 40s, did he begin to gain real recognition for his paintings. Did he ever do woodcuts? He never made woodcuts, only etchings. Wow. Mm -hmm. And the etchings, black and white? Yes, yes. And I really think that that, that through etchings, through black and white, this is where he figured out light. Because with, you know, with the him, black it's all, and white... Yeah. With, with him, it's all about the light. It is, it is. And it's not mm-hmm. the light
0: you're expecting. Mm-hmm. That's the key. It's mm-hmm. not the light you're expecting. Mm-hmm. If you, you walk by... That's why the luncheonette, to me, mm-hmm. was such an effective painting. Because the light's not coming from a source you think it's coming from.
3: That's right, yeah. yeah. You know, and he loved theater, um, he, when, he, when he married his wife Josephine in 1924 she also had been a th- an avid theater goer and was involved even as an actor herself they went to the theater all the time now it's, I think when you think about what um, a theater set looks like and how theater designers would use light to create drama in their scenes there is something of that I think in what Hopper's doing this kind of, that sort of theatrical light
0: and speaking of light, there's something that the Whitney is doing with light because you had you could start from scratch and build that light in, mm-hmm. right? So you're getting a lot of natural light in that building. We
3: are, <laughs> we are, yes. No, I love it. Yes, um, it's something we love too. Sometimes um, sometimes we have to uh, fight against it to some degree because not all artwork really wants to have light on it. Um, however, we've, you know, our conservators, like the, the sort of our art scientists who work with us in the building. They're worried about fading. Yeah, of course, I mean, certain mediums will fade, but they've been amazing in helping us learn how to create spaces where we can enjoy that natural light, um, while also protecting artworks in the other spaces. With all the
0: nooks and crannies, even though you've got more square footage,
3: mm-hmm.
0: I'm sure you've got some secret spots for you.
3: <laughs> um, well, within the, within the building? Yeah. Um, Well, one of my favorite spots in the building is the Works on Paper Study Center. Um, And that is on our sixth floor of the building. It is adjacent to the collection galleries, so if you come to the Whitney, you can peer in through our glass doors and it's in that space that we actually have more than half of the Whitney's collection stored. um, Almost in those sort of rotating shelving units that you know from libraries. We have like over 14,000 works on paper in that space and we can pull them out and study them. We have people come in to view and do research. Um, that is a really fun space. And is that accessible to anybody? It's accessible by appointment. So a researcher can make an appointment um, to visit the Whitney and to see, to see works in the collection.
0: But do you do any kind of private tours there too? We do. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it is accessible if you call ahead.
3: Right. Making an appointment a few weeks in advance. Mm-hmm. There you go. Mm-hmm. See, demand, demand, <laughs> demand. I got it. I got it. But... When
0: people come there for the first time, not for, for, and forgetting the original building mm-hmm. up on Madison Avenue, mm-hmm. what's the biggest surprise to them when they walk in?
3: Well, I do think that there is something about, um, about the site and about the light and the windows, like you're saying, that um, this is not a museum that pulls you in and closes you off from the city. It's very different from a museum like the Guggenheim in that way, which is this amazing, you know, sculpture. But you're closed, but you're closed but, off. But you're closed off from the city, which was the intention, of yeah. course. And the Whitney is not that. Well, you're closed off that. from walking in circles. Right, 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 <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, and the Whitney is so porous. You know, you're constantly. You, if you're walking down the stairwells, you're looking out at the Hudson River. Um, coming in and out, you're seeing the the you're seeing the High Line. You're seeing the rooftops around us. So it's very connected to the city, and that is quite unusual for New York museums.
0: Edward Hopper, of course, overwhelming in terms of his his output, his product, not just the paintings, but the etchings. Right. But then you turn a corner and it's Alexander Calder.
3: That's right. On our... um, Right, we currently have uh, a major exhibition on Edward Hopper that looks at Edward Hopper's New York, as you note, on the fifth floor in those exhibition galleries. But... Always on display are the works on our seventh floor permanent collection galleries, and that's where we do have um, a few other works by Hopper, and around the corner from that, Alexander Calder. And the circus. Yes, the circus. The circus
0: is interesting because of the materials that he worked with, right? The metal, the wire.
3: Exactly. I mean,
0: the message that he was giving you in that is New York itself is a circus. (laughs) But I mean... It's, it's these wire sculptures that are turned into various animals and the ringmaster of the circus.
3: That's great. It's wonderful. And I think it's something that is really a beloved work in the collection. I think for many people um, growing up in the city, they visited the circus in the old Whitney Breyer building. It used to be on sort of permanent display for yeah. many years there. Um, and we're so happy to have it back on display in a kind of a gallery onto itself. I mean, it's a sort building. of signature piece. It is. There's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. And we have um, the, the work itself is displayed. So that means sort of almost setting up the circus um, as Calder would have set it up when he would travel around and have these right. um, performances. And then we also have a wonderful documentary film that shows him um, performing the circus, which is that that is one of my favorite parts. Where did that come from? It it was filmed. Um, I I don't remember the exact year. It was filmed decades ago um, when during one of his performances, and it is the it's a great way to enliven the experience of seeing it. It's sometimes hard to imagine how the how the different elements moved around, and then having him there with his wonderful voice and you know talking to all of the characters. It's it's really dynamic and great.
0: You know when you think of some of the world's best museums. You're thinking of signature items that make a statement simply because of their size, Mm -hmm. right? A Botero Mm -hmm. or a um, a Rodin, Mm -hmm. right? What's your signature overwhelming piece
3: at the Whitney? Um, It's a great question because I think probably many of us at the museum might have a different answer to that. I think that's a good thing. I think one of my favorite signature Whitney pieces is Jay DeFeo's The Rose, um, which is a massive work that is um, part painting, part sculpture, a work that the artist worked on in her um, Bay Area studio for years and became so um, massive and worked that it had to be, um, lifted out of her studio building through the window, and another artist friend of hers—talking We're talking cranes. Yes, exactly. Um, had filmed that, so there's, you know, there's a wonderful story to to that work, and and it's just a, it's great to have it. And then in, it was what trucked across the country. I'm sure. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How often are you rotating the exhibits? Um, we try to keep our seventh floor galleries. Um, Fairly, um, I don't want to say static, but but let's say we try to keep them fairly steady so that people can return and see you know see their favorite works. Even within that gallery, though, that's we maybe rotate that. We've rotated about every three years, um, but within that, we do make changes. So you'll see like one gallery will be changed up every six months or so to keep it um, feeling dynamic. We have another floor of the museum that we also tend to dedicate to the Whitney's collection, and that is more for thematic thematic displays. Th- those usually will be on view for a year. Do you do overnights? Um, we have not. I think in the Breuer building, yeah. And the last days of the Breuer Building being open, I don't know if you remember this, but we closed um, with the Jeff Koons retrospective and we did do 24 hours. (laughs) I was definitely I wasn't even working at the Whitney at the time, but I was definitely one of those New Yorkers who (laughs) showed up at, you know, five in the morning um, because of the novelty of being in a museum at that time. But I want to go beyond the overnights. I mean, I'm Mm -hmm. talking about sleepovers. You know, night at the museum, especially for kids. It would be great. We have not done that yet. It does not mean that it won't Happen oh, at some point, but yeah. <laughs> I'll take that back to I'll take it, that back to know, my it's, colleagues. It's the social
0: nature of the museum mm-hmm. itself, especially in the neighborhood that you're in. I'm just, I mean, because. A lot of museums are open in the evenings. A lot of museums are doing, you know, you're you're got your glass of wine and mm-hmm. you're right. Are you doing that?
3: We do that. So on Friday nights we're open from seven to ten, which is an extension of our normal hours, um, and we also are pay what you wish during that time. So it's a great time to come to the Whitney. It's become a very popular New York date night. I've heard. <laughs> You've <laughs> heard. I've heard. I've <laughs> seen people doing it um, because you can, you know, have a glass of wine on our beautiful well, it's eighth a cheap floor date. cafe. It's what
0: you wish. That's it's true. A, that's a, true. It's a cheap date. <laughs> no, but if you're on a budget, that's the time to do it. Right. Of course. Mm-hmm. I love it. My thanks to Kim. Now, if truth be told, when I was growing up in Manhattan, my parents would never let me go to the meatpacking district. It was old, decaying, and there wasn't anything to do there. Well, that's certainly not the case anymore. And one of the showpieces of the neighborhood has become the Hudson River Park Trust and how they've turned the neighborhood around. Noreen Doyle doesn't just know the story,
1: she's living it. The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own.
2: It's a thoughtful way to celebrate their accomplishments and make the occasion even more special. Visit MMS.com to create your own personalized gifts and party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code WONDERY to receive 15% off your next order. Noreen Doyle, thanks for joining us. I'm so excited to be here today.
0: So forgetting my terrible touch football stories, I mean, one of the challenges that you have is to find that space and then to make it work.
2: Absolutely. So Hudson River Park is a very long story in terms of how we got built and started. We started with industry that over time, over the decades, started failing on the west side of Manhattan and leaving, leaving a series of abandoned piers or piers that were just not being used for their original industrial purposes anymore.
0: And then you had an opportunity.
2: And we had an opportunity. In 1998, the state and city worked together on legislation called the Hudson River Park Act. But i got to ask you a question.
0: So you have a factory or a business that fails, and it's on the river, and you have these abandoned piers. Who owned those piers?
2: Generally, at one point, they were privately owned, and over time, they became owned by either the state or the city. So you took it over. Well, we are people. the state and the city. So That's what I'm saying, right? Yeah, exactly. So basically, the state and city were so left. You didn't have left...
0: to condemn it. You just no, had it. Yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah. And they were used for things like Christmas tree sales or auto glass repair shops. The original pop-ups. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So once you knew that you, you could do something with it, then you, then you had to figure out what? What? How to build it, how to pay for it, all of those fun things. So let's start with what you did. Well, Hudson River Park is a four-mile-long park. It goes from basically just north of Chambers Street to 59th Street. Guys, think about that. A park that goes four miles in New York City. That's, that's a big deal. It's a big deal. It's a lot of open space, and it's a lot of opportunity. And it's complicated construction in the river, adjacent to the highway, on pretty narrow property for a lot of it.
0: Yeah, I did a story not long ago about a project of putting oyster shells back into the Hudson, and I still I'm still trying to get my arms around why would you put shells back in the river?
2: I am so glad you asked that question. So, just in the past year, we have put in 31 million juvenile oysters, and you don't—they're teeny tiny when you put them in, and you actually seed them on old oyster shells, on 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 oyster shells, and uh, that you put them in our case in cages generally. And the cages and the oysters together are helping rebuild habitat in the Hudson River.
0: Plus, I'll give you my entire extensive extent of my knowledge of oysters, they're good garbage collectors.
2: They are amazing water cleaners. Absolutely. So one of the benefits of these projects is that they themselves, the oysters themselves, help clean the, the river in our They're case. They're filters. Exactly. The other benefit is that the structures provide habitat nooks and crannies for other types of fish to hide in from predator fish. And so basically, it's building a reef system effectively in the river. And... You know,
0: we, if we extrapolate this in terms of how much time it's going to take to do it, it's not
2: happening overnight. It does not happen overnight. You need permission for every single thing that you do and put into the river. So there are permits and regulatory requirements, and we do scientific monitoring of these things as well. All right, can I ask a really stupid question? Let's not talk about what you're putting into the river. What are you taking out? We take out Old sewing machines sometimes we take out a lot of plastic and actually that's one of the things that is important for people I think to understand how big a problem plastic pollutants are in the river and we have created a park over plastic program to try to help educate people about single-use plastics.
0: Yeah, you know, it's so interesting to me that we're only finally getting our arms around single-use plastics when it's been a problem since there's been single-use plastics.
2: Absolutely. I think people are becoming more aware of it, but it's also a daunting task. But if you think of it individually, what can you do one by one, bring a refillable water bottle?
0: So when you take some of these piers that have been abandoned, are you building on those piers or are you leaving them in their, in their basically decayed state?
2: Structurally, we are rebuilding them, but we actually leave generally the old wooden piles because they're another form of providing habitat enhancement. So we build around the old wooden piles below the newly constructed concrete piles and concrete piers. So if you're building piers, that means you get to do stuff on those piers. We get to do a lot of good stuff on those piers. Like? Like we have four non-motorized boathouses in Hudson River Park where you can actually go kayaking right here in Manhattan. Of course, ball fields, sunning lawns, very popular. you understand
0: something now, Noreen, that when I grew up in New York, if I went on the river and I fell in the river, I would glow in the dark.
2: My dad grew up in the Bronx, and he has some of those stories as well. Yeah, it's... it's, So is the river
0: getting cleaner? The river
2: is getting much cleaner. It is a place where uh, people... Tens of thousands, about 30,000 people went out in kayaks last year alone.
0: How many came back? Oh, just kidding. Just kidding. Just
2: kidding. I think all of them. I know, I
0: know. But that's great. It's another another use that used to be 300 years ago.
2: It's a real success story for New York's river um, and for all of the environmental laws and activists that have worked on it.
0: What are you building now?
2: We are building two new park areas, almost eight acres in total. One is right here in the meatpacking area. We call it the Gansborg Peninsula. It's about five and a half acres. It's just a couple of blocks away from here. That will have a large ball field, a salt marsh for habitat, another oyster reef structure, an outdoor gym, a dog run, and a sunning beach for people to just enjoy the river.
0: A sunning beach on the Hudson?
2: A sunning, not swimming beach, yes.
0: I got it. But the salt marsh is new.
2: Yes. uh, The salt marsh is another one, another aspect of how we're trying to improve the health of the river. And tell me if I'm
0: going to make a wild guess here. If you're building a ball field there, will it it light up at night? Can you do night games?
2: Oh, yeah. You can actually see the very tall light fixtures right now.
0: That's already been
2: installed. A night game on the river. Yes. Yes. Incredible views. But
0: you can't hit a ball in the river. We hope not. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So now, what is your biggest challenge?
2: I would say that there is one section left of the park uh, that we have yet to really start construction of. Um, it's the area from 29th to 44th Street. That area has a lot of existing active land uses that we have to work around. Um, and then there is one really important project that also has an environmental connection that we're still trying to finish fundraising for. It's, we call it the estuarium, River Research and Education Center.
0: And I'm hoping that one of the things that's part of your mandate is not to over-commercialize it.
2: We are very controlled, almost on a peer-by-peer basis, with what we're allowed to do and what we're not allowed to do. Okay, what are you not allowed to do? Hotels, residential buildings, generally commercial offices, uh, in most cases, uh, industrial uses. Right, this is basically public space. It is public space.
0: Wow, so you'll have concerts out there too?
2: We had just a couple weeks ago, we had a blues barbecue festival. We had about 13,000 people. Fantastic day of free blues. Wow. It was great. And people were probably in the kayaks listening. Probably some, somewhere. (laughs) Is there a website people can go to? Yes, it's HudsonRiverPark.org. And people can contribute in many different ways. Absolutely, we have volunteer opportunities, we have green teams for planting, you can even measure the size of oysters that are growing depending on what you do here. You can do the park over plastic program, compost. We have a lot of different ways to participate.
0: My thanks to Noreen. So tell me I'm dreaming that Americans aren't just looking for a travel deal. You might think that based on our behavior the last 10 months. No one seems to be price sensitive. We're traveling at any cost, literally, and nobody's flinching. So, what does this surging travel demand, coupled with rising prices, mean? And is there any good news? John Gieselman, the president of Expedia Brands, stops by with some interesting developments and a strategy or two that might actually help. John Gieselman, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Peter. Great to talk to you again.
0: Yeah, so. Let's talk about what's going on, because what I've been noticing, and it's a surprise to me, because here we are in the fourth quarter, forgetting Thanksgiving, which is, you know, coming up, but forgetting the fourth quarter normally is not a heavy travel period. It's usually when prices go down, with the exception of Thanksgiving and Christmas, and uh, there are deals, and what we're seeing this year is that the pent-up demand has continued. Americans don't even seem to be very price-sensitive as the way they used to be. Uh, Hotel rates are up about 23%. Over what they were about a year ago, and airfares depend. Not counting the holidays, but airfares in many markets have also risen along with with hotel rates. And does that come as a surprise to you? I mean, what are you seeing?
1: Well, I, I mean, we're seeing the same thing, um, and you know, I think it's a it's a a function of a bunch of different factors. The first one is there's just so much pent up demand. To your point, you know, I think as people navigated through the the pandemic uh, and things have loosened up. People are just eager to get back out and and travel and to visit loved ones and you know uh, catch up on on all the traveling they weren't able to get in during that time frame. The the other big factor is um, you know our partners in travel, the airline industry, hotel industry. They you know it's been tough to staff up. Um, you know so they the on the supply side of the business. Um, it's not what it was pre-pandemic. So when you when you take those, you know, there's other factors as well. But when you take those two things together, um, you know, it does make it somewhat somewhat challenging. Um, you just you just need to plan ahead and and commit, um, and you know, before before you get out there, make sure you have a great experience where, where you're getting you know to and from.
0: Exactly. But you know, it's interesting. Americans didn't seem to be price sensitive this summer; they were traveling at all costs. And I've seen, you know, airfares from like New York to Madison, Wisconsin, for a thousand dollars. Oh my God! I mean, and people, and the plane was full. How about that?
1: Yeah, I I think that's you know it's exactly right. There there are ways you know that you can you can be smart about it uh, and, and not pay full rack rate. You know, one of them that you brought up yesterday on uh, on CEO's Morning Show, uh, which you know is a is a great hack that we we discovered. Uh, believe it or not, if you actually do book on Sundays, on average, you can save, you know, around 15%. Um, and the way we looked at that, we didn't just look at searches, which is, you know, Google looked at it that way, which is helpful. But it's just it just kind of goes to show you, depending upon how you look at the data, it matters. We actually looked at booking data uh, over the last four years. And it consistently showed that if you book on Sunday, you, you can get a you can get a better price. Um, you know, and if you're an Expedia member, uh, you can add additional savings on top of that. One of the things I like to remind people of as far as our business, which I, I think people forget is when you book through us through your flights through Expedia, you still get your airline miles. So you get your benefits, you know, that, that, that you would get, uh, if, if you book direct, but then you get a loyalty points from us on top. So really, if you're not booking through us, you're kind of giving away that additional benefit. Uh, of the added loyalty points from us that you can use then for another trip.
0: well, let me talk to you a little bit about the Sunday night day because not that long ago, the the real sweet spot wasn't Sunday night. It was one minute after midnight Tuesday or twelve or one am Wednesday morning in the days they, right. in the days when airlines were selling you the the tickets that required a Saturday night stay, and you had to book two weeks in advance. um and and they gave you a twenty four hour window from the time that you booked till the time that you paid. So all of a sudden by Monday night when all the discounting was over and you had all those fares that had to be booked by midnight Tuesday and all of a sudden only 70% of those fares came in booked, you had all these other discount fares flooding back into the system at about one o'clock in the morning that suddenly became available. And uh, okay, that was then, right? Then the day became Friday and then that was the sweet spot. Why is it now Sunday, John?
1: Well, it all comes down to, you know, the airlines are trying to optimize. They only have, think of it, if they were a store, you know, they only have so much shelves. So they're just trying to optimize the, the load uh, and the pricing associated with the supply that they do have. Um, you know, and, and I think that's why it's important to look at it based on actual booking data. But the, the reality of this is, is that the pricing, it's tough for the average people to average person to just follow all this and and it leaves you with the feeling that uh you know maybe you didn't get the best price so you know another another you know helpful hint you know here is that we have a new price tracking feature uh in the expedia app where you can put in the flights that you're looking at and then just let us do the work we will constantly update you on the pricing you know, on what's happening, and then you can decide whether to book then or book later. It's entirely up to you. But it not only tells you what the prices are in in real time and when there's a material change, but it gives you some prediction as to when it might be up or down. And it's been a huge hit, and it's and it's based on a hundred million searches a day. So there's enough scale that you really get you know, an accurate read on what the price might be in the future and what it is today. Another way you can be really smart about it is we have another feature launching. It's called price drop protection. And basically what it is, is it's an add-on. Uh, it's, it's optional. Um, but, but basically what it allows you to do is to lock in your rate. And then um, if the price drops between when you book it uh, and when you actually fly, if you take this this option, um, we'll cover the difference. So it it gives people great assurance. It it is a very complex and constantly changing industry that, that it you know dynamic pricing changes throughout an hour, you know, let alone a given day or day of the week. So these kind of features, you know, we're using very sophisticated machine learning driven technology to basically keep customers informed so that they can make the right decision for themselves.
0: You know, when you think about it, airlines are updating their fares on the average of about 250,000 times a day. So there you go. I mean, how do you stay on top of that? Let me exactly. ask. But now let's talk about the other factors that are playing into this, of course. <laughs> Inflation, airlines slashing either the number of flights or service entirely to certain communities. What trends are you seeing there in terms of uh, is there a tipping point yet where Americans are going to say, nope, not going to fly this year. It's too expensive. You know, we were talking what all summer long about gas prices, but we never got to the tipping point where folks said, I'm not going to get in my car. I can't do it. They, they put more people in the car, but they still drove.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, you know, these big macro factors do have, have an influence on what people do. You know, I think, I think the rise in gas prices this summer didn't have as much of an impact on people as maybe we thought it might. Because demand was so high. People wanted to get back out. You know, they hadn't been traveling. They needed to go see friends and family and so on. Um, so you so you kind of needed to to pay for it. But, you know, one of the things that's working in the other direction is the strength of the dollar. You know, that means for us here in the U.S., when we travel abroad, you know, the dollar goes further. So for those big trips that are starting to open up, you know, to uh, – to Japan and and Hong Kong and Singapore, we're starting to see surge in demand as those countries have opened up and, and people making those trips. And, you know, so the cost of the high cost of energy and gas is being offset somewhat by the strength of the dollar. That's great for us. Bit of a different situation in Europe, um, you know, where I think the effects of the war are going to um, be going to be a real challenge for, for people in Europe, not only from, from an energy standpoint, just have being able to heat their homes, but they're going to have to make, you know, trade-offs between, traveling, and and the cost of energy this winter. So in, in many respects here in the U.S., we're in much better shape. Other parts of the world are a bit more challenged.
0: My thanks to John to Kim Conaty and Noreen Doyle, and my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, you know what to do. Just log on to petergreenberg.com.
1: The Ion Travel podcast is produced by Amanda Morris and Anthony protis Chung. For more content from Peter Greenberg and the Ion Travel team, visit petergreenberg.com. Ion Travel is a production of CBS News Radio.
0: If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader.
1: They're really good at numbers. Auto Trader. The Hargan women seem to have it all.
3: From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing.